I want to invite my friend, Chris Jones, to come up here. Now, he's going to share the Word of God with us today. And let me tell you, I had a chance uh, earlier this week to sit with him and some others, and we walked through what he's going to share. And make no mistake about it, what Chris is about to share with us, we need to hear. And I want to invite you to really lean in and let the Lord Jesus meet you in this. Brother, can I pray for you right now? Oh, Lord, I love this man, and I'm so thankful that uh, he's my friend, and he's a man I look up to, and he's a man who makes Jesus famous in his life. I pray in the name of this Jesus that as we spend time in the Word of God today, that you would uh, change us, that you would speak to us directly and that the message that you would bring would push through all the noise of time and space so we could know your heart better. Carry Chris along as he is with us here today. And may we walk away from here later knowing that the Most High God has met with Chris and all of us. Through the power of the Spirit and for the glory of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, brother. Thank you, brother. Oh. Well, welcome to you all again. I'll just repeat what Pastor Matthew has said and welcome you to New Hope Church. You really are the few, the brave, the frozen. So well done for coming. Um, right about this time, um, a lot of Minnesotans start to ask that question, one of those eternal questions. Um, they start to say to each other, let's move. For goodness sake, let's move. Arizona maybe, Florida. And that's actually the name of our series, Let's Move. Of course, it doesn't mean move down south like a snowbird, although God bless you if you are, and welcome to you all watching from far away in the warmth. It's good to see you all, and welcome for coming. So this day, I have been asked to speak on the topic of growing together, growing together. Better put these on or else who knows what I'll say. Okay, there we go. Now, we want to move, we want to grow together. So I've been asked to speak on this, and oh, there we go. Up on the board, you'll see growing together. Now, I'm actually a, a, a recovering English teacher from many, many years back, and so I'm very conscious of the difference a well-placed comma can really make. And so at this time, I'm going to make a little bit of advantage of that and say, yeah, you can be growing together, or you can be growing together. For example, that comma is so important. I mean, we've all probably heard the joke, and it's something I never want to hear at a family gathering. But when the children cry out, let's eat, Grandpa. That doesn't sound too good to me. But let's eat, Grandpa. That's okay. I can deal with that. Okay. So apparently, just a simple comma, the addition of it can save us from cannibalism, particularly we grandparents. Punctuation, as they say, saves lives. And we should all be mindful of that. Okay? Good. Maybe adding that comma can just help us understand a little bit more of what I'm trying to get at today. You see, growing together, rather than growing together, is what a lot of our churches sometimes have been doing in recent years. What do I mean? Well, perhaps if I say clumping, gathering, retreating into buildings together and taking up defensive positions, it might explain a little bit more of what I'm saying. You see, we can look at growing churches around us, and we can talk about some new mega church, maybe in the suburbs, and we can tell ourselves sometimes that the church is growing. What we don't realize, sadly, is that most churches in the U.S. actually grow from the removal of people from other churches. They gather people together. Perhaps they offer more of what the people want. 
And you could be surprised by thinking, yeah, the church is really growing. We've got these really big, massive churches. I see them on the TV. But actually, we tend to rearrange our people. And unfortunately, that can deceive us. You see, of the nearly 400,000 churches in the U.S., would you believe that less than 1% actually grow by conversion growth? 1% conversion growth. If I told you that the U.S. church attendance increased by 500,000 from 1990 to 2006, you, you, you might get pretty excited. Whoa, that's, that's pretty good. Of course, if I then told you that the population of the U.S. increased by 60 million over that same period, it might not seem so exciting. If I told you that 88% of churched youth will not attend any church by their 20s, you might start to understand some of the size of the problem. You see, we're not keeping up. And we can deceive ourselves by pointing to large churches that have often grown from the closure or the decline of other churches. We are growing together, for sure, but not growing. So... I'm the bad cop to Pastor Matthew's good cop, as you've realized. So now that I've ruined your Sunday lunch, let me share some other things for you and hopefully some suggestions to climb out of this situation so that we can actually start growing together. You see, our situation isn't true of all the world. I didn't say it, but a lot of you know I'm the global outreach director. So I get to see, I have the pleasure, privilege of seeing many things happening around the world. And let me tell you, things are changing. In fact, 60% of all Christians now are found in the global south. There are movements literally of millions of people that are multiplying faith in places that maybe only 40, 50 years ago we would consider the graveyard of missionaries in the church. For example, in 1900, Africa had 9 million Christians, the whole continent of Africa. By 2000, there were 355 million. Whoa. Yeah, you can clap if you want. It's amazing, isn't it? Get that. I know it's over there and not here, but it's still us. It's our family. It's our church. It's our people. It's the bride of Christ. 300. And you know, most of those grew from around about the 70s, the most rapid expansion. If I told you, for example, in 1900 in Latin America, there were 50,000 Protestants. Now I know there's a lot of Catholics in Latin America. But there were 50,000 Protestants. Well, there are 64 million now. 64 million. Praise God. In Asia, between 1970 and 2010, the number of Christians in Asia grew from 101 to 351 million. It's even estimated that China sees about 10,000 people a day come to Christ. By 2030, they say, China will have more Christians than any nation on the earth. Whoa, okay? I just want to give you the counterbalance there, guys, to the gloom and doom I give you here to what's happening over there. Not because I want you to think, boy, I wish I lived in Africa. I know you don't. But because I want you to see that our experience is not normative in the world of faith. And our experience maybe has something that we need to learn from them so that we can change it and truly grow together. So what's happened to this balance of faith to the point where many of these countries are now sending missionaries to us, that is the US us? Many things for sure. But one thing is that a lot of these places have returned to a much more simple, reproducible, 
obedience-based response to the command of Christ to us as his disciples. See, I've been part of starting or leading four church plants around the world, some in places people would consider probably anti-Christian. So I have some experience of church planting. But can anyone tell me where Jesus told us to go and plant churches? No, he didn't specifically say that, you see. It's implied, of course. It's understanded. We, we know that churches need to grow. But he didn't actually say that. You see, we assume he did. So did I. I believe that planting churches would be the best way to obey the Great Commission. But actually, he told us to make disciples. In fact, he told us to obey his commands and make disciples by teaching them to do the same. He told us he would build his church. And of course, he didn't mean the first church of Jesus on the corner of 49th and 169. He will build the church. See, we've all grown with an understanding of what church is, or at least what it looks like, at least our kind of church. And it's not necessarily wrong. But when we emphasize church planting, perhaps we're shifting our emphasis. Because when you look at it, it doesn't achieve the things that Christ has asked of us. It's a form we've grown very accustomed to and love. I love the church. I was a church sent missionary from the 80s. I love the church. But understanding that it contains many important truths that we cherish, we have to ask ourselves, does the form fulfill the function needed to obey Christ's command to us? You see, Christ's last order was not to build buildings that we could meet in as a church or even to make our services and programs the most popular in town. He actually said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go. That should probably flash up up there, I think, boys. Go and make disciples. Now, that word go sounds pretty imperative. But really, the main imperative in that little phrase there is make disciples. The word go there is as you go, or in your going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You see, we all come to the text with things that we've learned, things that we've understood, things that we believe to be true. And sometimes it stops us from actually reading it properly and understanding it, let alone really getting a sense of what there is in us for us. See, many people limit this text to missionary work. Oh, this is what crazy people like me do, who go to difficult places and put themselves in danger and drag their family around the world. That's, that's for those guys, those crazy guys, right? But we just think that, or we've developed an understanding that that's what it means. But this was a command he gave to every disciple as he left. And don't say to me, oh, no, it's just those guys that were there. Because remember what it says. All disciples are taught to obey what he taught them. So if they learned it, we have to learn it too. There's no get out clause in that one. Just let that set on your mind a little while, if you've never really thought about that. If you skimmed over that text a bunch of times and thought, whew, that sounds tricky. Think about it. And consider this. What does obedience to Christ and what he says what does that look like? 
What is it that Christ is truly asking of us? You see, in the West, we seem to think that the more you know, the more chance you have of being a mature follower of Christ. A lot of our discipleship programs and our Bible studies are all designed to give us the facts and the knowledge we need to be good Christians, at least as we understand what that means. But despite the fact that we are probably the most trained and the most knowledgeable believers on the planet, it appears that isn't working very well. Maturity doesn't always equal obedience. Think about that. Maturity does not always equal obedience. We love to train and to teach, but we're not always so good at obeying or teaching others to obey. Consequently, we in the West are in decline. So what is our idea of a church? What do we think about them? We build them, rent a place, we ask people to come, we make it a pleasant experience for them, we offer things for the people to take part in and enjoy, and even serve others, which makes us feel happy. But you know, we spend an enormous amount of time, effort, and finance doing it. Now, long, long, long ago in 2001, researchers were asked a question. They said, could you tell us how much it costs to baptize a believer in the United States? Now, how did they work this out? I'm sure it wasn't to do with uh, laundering the clothes after they got wet or uh, fixing the microphone after an excited pastor jumped in by accident. Sorry about that, Matthew. Um, all of the infrastructure, all of the things, the programs, the buildings, the people, all of that work was all factored in as a total cost and then divided by the figure of people reported baptized. So, you're never going to guess, but you know it's going to be bad, right? It's $1.5 million per person. <coughs> Seriously? Just get them in the bath, right? $1.5 million per person. And that was 2001. So, what it is in 2024, heaven knows. And I'm sure he does. So, we're growing older. We're growing smaller. And growing poorer, it seems. And I, Mr. 62-year-old, white person, marginally educated, are now the average of our church. Go figure, eh? I think it's time to move, don't you? Let's really move. And I don't mean to another church, by the way. Let's move towards Christ by putting obedience of his commandments First and foremost, you see, I encourage you to sign up for our monthly Go News. This is the global outreach department's kind of catch up with all things that New Hope is doing around the world. And of course, it's written by some dashing Englishmen. So you really, really should get it. Uh, it'll really help you keep up with what New Hope is doing, if you read it, of course. And last month's Go News spoke of what has become known as the discipleship making movement the disciple-making movement. You wouldn't think there'd need to be one since that was Jesus' last command to us, but apparently it's taken us a few thousand years to come around again to understanding what Jesus was actually saying to us. So the disciple-making movement is an approach to disciple-making that has seen literally millions of people coming to the Lord. And it grew and flourished in places where there actually weren't any disciples before by focusing on making disciples who make Disciples. That sounds kind of familiar. It's kind of something Jesus said a little while ago, but hmm, there you go. That's just me. We think 
that we need to get people saved first and then we can disciple them, whatever we mean by saved. But funnily enough, Jesus didn't seem to. Do you remember Peter's denials of Christ? Three times, oh my goodness. Not just once, three times for good measure. And what was he told? Well, if you deny me, I'll deny you. And yet, this is Peter. What about the unbelieving crowds he discipled? What about the 72? What about the ascension? If you read the uh, story and the record of the ascension, it'll say some worshipped, but some doubted. (laughs) These were the guys who'd just been commissioned, by the way, to send this great news out into all the nations and to all the people. These are the guys who'd been sent to make disciples, who make disciples, and it says of them, some doubted. Hmm. Interesting. You see, these were actually disciples on their journey towards Christ. Clearly, it seems disciples aren't expected to have it all figured out. They're actually expected to learn obedience. You see, in the old days, in the New Testament, bringing people to Jesus literally meant grabbing them by the hand and pulling them to Jesus so they could listen to him. They could hear what he had to say and they could decide whether they obeyed or not. We've made bringing people to Jesus something of a saving event, but actually, maybe it's not meant to be that way. We literally are still meant to bring people to the point of hearing from Jesus. You see, if you go to Jesus, you'll learn obedience. If you don't, you won't. See, people move towards Jesus by actually obeying him. We think that sometimes we have to learn a lot before we can grow up and be mature, but actually, we learn incrementally by obedience. As people move towards Jesus, God moves closer to them. When you make disciples, churches come along later. That's how it worked in the New Testament. You know, people in the discipleship-making movement use different examples of church forms, and in last month's Go News, I talked a little bit about this. You see, there is a DNA in everything. And that DNA, Genesis tells us, is what reproduces things of the same kind. So, how we understand the DNA of a church or of a disciple maker determines its reproductive potential. That sounds a bit fancy. You see, Genesis tells us that things give birth to their own kind. And that in everything there is the seed for the thing that will come out of them. Read Genesis 1 again. It's fascinating. Things that you don't see. The seed for the new is found in the old. What do I mean? Well, if you were to compare two churches and you'd say, well, this church is like an elephant and then you pull another church and you said, yeah, this church is like a rabbit. Which of those two churches do you think will carry in them the inbuilt DNA to go faster and more widely? If I said one church is a mighty oak, And this church is a dandelion. Tell me, which one do you think is going to spread faster and wider? You see, if we focus exclusively on growing churches that are elephants or oaks, we can't help but come up against the inbuilt DNA limiting the growth we need to actually obey Jesus' command. We become almost inadvertently disobedient because we can't reproduce fast enough. 
You see, we've become a defensive rather than an invasive species. Jesus used the picture of small things like yeast or salt when he talked about the kingdom. Things that infiltrated, things that went into and changed the whole nature of the thing they entered with yeast or with salt. Churches that come out of disciple making carry the DNA for the rapid reproduction and going into the world around them. You see, I'm afraid sometimes that the Western church has far too many Christians, <laughs> despite what I said earlier, but not enough disciples who make disciples. You see, if we are to grow together, we'll need to change. Christian is only someone who identifies with that belief system, often by birth or tradition. It doesn't make them disciples. Disciples are those who obey the commands and teaching of Christ because they love him. You see, we do not obey sometimes because we do not sufficiently love. And we don't grow because we don't obey. And we find it hard to obey because we don't constantly put ourselves in the place of hearing. We were not told to grow just big and strong. We were told to reproduce and multiply. And the obedience that comes from love for Jesus is the key here. You see, love and obedience go hand in hand. Up on the uh, screen, John 14, 21 to 23 should come up. There we go. Thanks, guys. Jesus puts it like this. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Speaking as a true churchman there. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Wow. Remember, too, what Jesus asked Peter after he'd risen. You know, flash up the next one, brothers. There we go. When they've finished eating, this is right after the resurrection, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What's surprising about this, perhaps, is that Jesus asks something that maybe I wouldn't have. I mean, if I'd been Jesus, I'd have said, well, do you believe in me now? Mm -hmm. Okay. Or are you sorry that you denied me? Okay, preachy, preachy. But he didn't. You think pretty much, Peter had pretty much failed his job interview, right? <laughs> his training internship had not gone well, let's say that. He ended it up by denying Jesus. So that's not overly brilliant. No way, right? Jesus can use him now. But we'd be so wrong. After all of the failures, all of the denials, all of the misunderstanding, Christ still gives him the job. Look after my sheep. You see, more important, even than getting it right all the time, Jesus asked him if he loved him. 
Why? Because love will drive us to obey, not knowledge. Love will drive us to obey. Our love of Jesus will fuel our desire to obey Jesus and make disciples of all people and in turn teach them to obey his teachings and commands. I guess we've all seen films, these action films, where some hero rallies his team before a big battle or something and says, failure is not an option. You've seen one of those uh, films, right? No, nobody, just me. Okay, fair enough. So anyway, take it my word for it. People say that in films, apparently. Um, You know, but for us, failure is a stage. It's an opportunity on the way as we learn to obey. We fail, but we continue because... We love Jesus so much. We say sorry, we pick ourselves up, continue towards him in obedience. You see, we're too quick to consider those who fail as an anomaly rather than the norm for people who are learning the disciples' way. Jesus would have had a hard time building the church if he looked at failure as we do sometimes or if our obedience was demanded by him rather than coming out of our love for him. See, this love is uh, what drives us to continue, even through failure. Perhaps we can understand even this just a little bit in a human sense by considering the love that we have in our family or for dear friends. You know, loving someone means that we obey them, not because it's a chore, not because we're forced to do it, come on, you do this, but because we love them. It's a sign of our love for them. In fact, we can't be really forced to love God. When we obey God, we are expressing our love back to him. So, let's do some Bible study together. You know, the Jewish teachers typically didn't give long monologues like I'm giving to you now. Typically, there would be a back and forth, a dialogue. When Jesus taught, he took comments and dialogued. People asked him questions. When Jesus spoke, he he sometimes answered questions as he went. And yet, Christ was the best teacher of all, of course. But he often asked for opinions. He asked people what they thought, what they thought they should do. You see, unless the scriptures inspired change or left them with something to obey, how would they grow? You see, we can leave a sermon entertained and amused rather than transformed and inspired to obey. I hope that won't be the case today. Now, up on the screen, they're going to flash up Deuteronomy 6, Verses 4 to 9. In the New Testament, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he harked back to this. It's something that faithful Jews do regularly through the day. It's called the Shema Yisrael. Hear, hearken, obey, heed Israel. And it comes in two parts. One is like the command, and the rest is how we can obey it. I don't know if you've heard the joke about Jesus addressing the multitudes with his disciples. He begins to teach, and then partway through his first sentence, he turns around to the guys and he says, listen, listen up carefully, guys. I don't want to hear four versions of this later. (laughs) The book of Deuteronomy is a little bit like that. Deuteronomy means second law, and it actually was a second repeating of the law to the Jews because unfortunately the first generation had not obeyed and so they died in the wilderness. So this second repeating of the law 
Deuteronomy, where it comes from. This is kind of like Moses looking at them and saying, you're going to make me say this all over again? So there you go. But this was Shema. This was God's way, the Shema, of discipling God's people, the Israelites, and preparing them for a faithful life when they entered into the promised land. You see, if they loved God, they would obey him. And if they obeyed him, they would flourish and multiply. Let's read out these verses. And I mean us read out these verses. Okay, guys? Okay, something to keep you warm. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I don't know, it's a little quiet in here. Let's try it again. And if I'm not going to get any participation here, we're not getting any obedience. So let's get some obedience started. Let's practice that obedience thing. Nice and loud. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your soul. Excuse me, I flipped them. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Wow, okay. The reason I wanted you to read it, and if we had more time, I'd make you read it again and think about it, is that unless you do, and unless you take time, it will be like one other piece of data that flies over your head into the sea of forgetfulness that is our modern life. It's so easy to forget these things, and that's why the Lord tells the people, remember these things, obey them. Now, I want to give you a few simple questions. I told you that around the world, people are multiplying churches like rabbits and dandelions, in fact, but not here. And there's many reasons for that, I'm sure, but one of them is that they have taken on a very simple form of studying. Jesus uh, quotes the prophets when he says, they will all be taught by God. Does this in John, in uh, John 6. And part of the thinking behind this is that sometimes, with all of our skill and training and understanding, we get in the way of God rather than point the way to God. This is a way to try and help anybody. And I mean, just like Jesus said, anyone who obeys me. They don't have to have the card-carrying hand, said the prayer, put the hand up. Anyone who obeys me. God is drawing people. So, first question. Is it up? First question, guys. Boom. What does this passage tell us about God? What does this passage tell us about God? Second question. What does this passage tell us about ourselves? Third question. If I believe this is a command, if I believe what was said in the Bible, when will I put it into practice this week? Next question. What will I need to change to put this into practice? Last question. How can I share what I have learned with someone who needs to hear this? Now, these questions and some variations on these questions have been used to form what is called a discovery Bible study. Sometimes they're just called discovery groups, lots of different names for them. 
But these have been the foundation for disciple-making movements all over the world. I was in Jakarta just recently. Indonesia, one of the largest Muslim countries in the world. And yet, over the last 20 to 30 years, movements of millions of believers have grown up in this nation. How does this happen? Well, it happens by us getting out of the way and letting God speak through his scriptures. You've just done a Bible, a discovery Bible study. Now, in your, in your pews, you'll see a QR code. If you go onto the website, you'll see QR, there's one outside. If you click on that, there'll be an expanded version of this that you can do yourself in life groups. You can do it at home, do it any way you want. But remember, to make disciples, we need to help people understand, hear from God, and obey what they heard. I want you to notice the simplicity of this. You see, we're called to be the disciple makers, and these things are used all over the world. Sometimes we think we have to be very knowledgeable and capable to do these things. Actually, we need to get people to come to God and to read these things for themselves and ask the simple questions. See, I could have spent half an hour or more talking about this passage, exegeting it for you, telling you all the fun words and things that are in there that would make it much more interesting and more knowledgeable for you. But you'd have nothing to obey. You'd have nothing to learn from. Let's let God teach us rather than just me as your teacher. Growing big or growing strong, there's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of growing together as disciples, growing many, growing far, and growing wide is much better. And it gives us the possibility to actually obey what Christ gave us to do, which is to disciple all nations and make disciples. You see, inviting people to church isn't kind of working as we hoped, but perhaps inviting unbelievers to learn about Jesus and using the networks and relationships we already have can take away some of that resistance people have to come to church. And we can naturally be the salt and the yeast of the kingdom. Well, there's a lot to share about the wisdom of making disciple makers, but I will try to imitate Jesus in this by leaving you with lots of questions. May the questions you have drive your obedience and your love of Christ as you seek him, so that we, just as Hebrews tells us, can learn obedience as Christ did. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for my brothers, my sisters. Thank you, Father, for those near and for those far. Lord, there is so much that we long for to see. There is so much, Father, that if we are to take on that desire and longing of your heart to see the nations discipled, we will need to grow and to learn into. Father, help us in these things. Speak, Lord. Don't let me distract by whatever I say and do. But Lord, speak to my brothers and sisters that they will grow to be disciple makers and see much life break out in this world. I ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.